Hello and welcome to another episode of Love and Citizenship. Thank you for tuning into this podcast and I hope that you, dear listener, and your loved ones are well wherever you may be in the world. I am truly, truly grateful to have Rachel Ryan on this podcast. I, I am just struck by the weird coincidences that led to this episode happening. Rachel did a Q&A and I sent her question away asking if she'd consider jumping on a very amateur podcast. And she said yes. And we got to record an episode. And I'm so, so fucking grateful that we did because Rachel Wright has had such a significant impact in my own journey of figuring out my sexuality and my relationship models. These are things that I'd written about. These are things that I've talked about and I still want to talk about. But not so long ago, I was a very closeted bisexual truly questioning my sexuality, but also questioning the relationship models that were handed down to me. And then out of the blue, a friend suggested that there was an account that I could follow and that there was somebody that was kind of doing good work to raise awareness around these things. And that was Rachel's Instagram. And the greatest compliment that I could ever give to the way she navigates her social media presence is just how incredibly she conveyed the idea that people like me, other people that are questioning these things are not alone. And I am forever in her debt for doing that for me. And Rachel, for those of you that do not know her work, is a sex educator and therapist based out of the States. And she does some truly incredible work. And I genuinely, genuinely cannot recommend enough that you go follow Rachel Wright this very instant. Honestly, pause whatever you're doing and go follow her. Because the way she navigates her social media presence and how community driven her work is, is just truly incredible. And the authenticity, the vulnerability. Oh, there's a, there's a lot of this that we talk about on the podcast, but genuinely, please do go check her work out, check her social media handles. It's all linked down below. And if you like this conversation, I would encourage that you check out the other episodes that are on this podcast before, but also the ones that are coming forward. So do subscribe, leave a review if you like what you listen to. And if you want to throw some money in my piggy bank, there is a Patreon link down below. There's three different tiers. You can sign up for whichever tier you want. There's benefits as well. A lot of my creative musings, drafts, early access to these podcast episodes, but that'll all be linked down below. But the the conversation today, it gives me immense pleasure to introduce my guest for this episode, the wonderful, the incredible Rachel Wright. Oh, I'm blushing over here. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I will absolutely introduce myself. Uh, My name is Rachel Wright. I am a licensed psychotherapist. I'm a sex educator. I do a lot of stuff. I I create content basically all around mental health, sex, and relationships for lots of different media outlets, different companies. I consult for people. And then I have my like, you know, quote unquote, normal therapy and coaching practice. And then I also oversee other coaches and therapists who work with clients as well. So I'm kind of all over the place, but if it falls under mental health, sex, or relationships, I'm probably there. If you want to know more, check out Rachel's social media because she's super active. And that's one of the things I will talk about, but I am constantly in awe of how you use not just the time that you have, but how effectively you use it as well for so many different ways. Um, but to you. kind of set the grounds for a lot of the conversation that we'll have today, how how do you identify? What do you identify as? How, how would you identify yourself to, I don't know, anybody listening in? So I am a woman. I identify as a non-monogamous queer woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I really went back and forth for a long time on what that identity was. Mm-hmm. I tried on lots of different labels over Mm -hmm. the years. And, you know, labels are meant to make us feel connected and feel community and feel understood, whether that's by ourselves or a way to express ourselves to be understood by others. And it wasn't really until I took on the combination of queer and non-monogamous that I Mm -hmm. felt really understood. And I am cisgender. So gender was not as big of a journey for me as it may be for some others. This sounds super vague in terms of just being able to see yourself, but I think kind of growing up, did you have a lot of kind of examples or like real around you examples of like people either, you know, in non-traditional relationships or kind of different relationship models, different gender identities? Was that something that was very visible or talked about? You know, non-monogamy, no, absolutely Mm -hmm. not. 
if it was happening, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. um, I think, you know, my dad had like one friend that I believe he said once like, oh, they're in an open marriage. And I just, it just kind of went over my head and like yeah. looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, okay. All right. I see what was going on. <laughs> um, we had a lot of friends who were gay, who were mm -hmm. bisexual, lesbian, and I grew up doing theater. My mom is an actress. And so yeah. I spent so much of my childhood in rehearsal rooms and her voice lessons. And there's so much inclusivity in the mm -hmm. theater community, not everywhere. But luckily, where where I was growing up in in the Bay Area, and so I had a lot of exposure to different types of people, different sexualities. You know, I had friends who had two moms or two dads. I also had a lot of friends whose parents were divorced and were dating. You know, so I I got to see a lot of different things. And actually, when I moved from Northern California in the Bay Area to Southern California to Orange mm -hmm. County, it was awful. Because I did not understand stereotypes. I grew up in such an accepting, loving, supportive environment. I wore my Birkenstocks sandals to school yeah. the first day of fourth grade. And I got made fun of for wearing lesbian shoes. And I came home and I asked my mom, I was like, I don't understand. Because we had so many lesbian friends, right? And I was like, I don't understand. I'm nine years old. Why do my sandals mean that I like girls. Like I don't even like yeah. anyone right now. Like I just yeah. moved here and like, I couldn't understand this correlation. Yeah. And then on top of it, like why it was funny to them, like mm -hmm. it was clearly like a bullying moment. And like, I didn't understand why there was any negative association with my Birkenstocks mm -hmm. or with being a lesbian. So I was yeah. like, this is so confusing to me. So yeah, I, I really was exposed to a lot of different types of people and situations, everything besides non-monogamy. It's funny when you're talking about the shoes. I went to a single sex boarding school, very military. And so for us, not so much the clothing because everybody wore the same uniform. For us, it was the things that we used to do. So if you were a theater kid, you were definitely gay. Or like, yeah. you know, if you wore scent, you were definitely gay. It's weird. It's weird how kids come up with these things like, oh, you're wearing lesbian shoes. Like, what's a lesbian shoe? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's so funny, too, because in high school, most of my boyfriends or like guys that I quote hooked up with, mm -hmm. you know, whatever that meant at the time, yeah. they were all in choir and drama with me. And so when I would hear people be like, oh, all those theater guys are gay. I was like, you have no idea what you're fucking missing in there. <laughs> like we're all like making out behind <laughs> all the set pieces. Like you guys don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's weird how these school rules kind of build up. But I'm growing up in a space like that then. How did you start identifying or like discovering these parts of yourself? They were definitely shoved more down. You know, it's really fun when I reflect on high school, even as I was telling you that story, I very clearly had feelings for a couple of, um, of my best friends who were women. Mm -hmm. But I didn't even allow myself to think about that. It was, I dyed my hair blonde. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I look like, I have very natural red hair, which I wanted to cam like chameleon myself and be mm -hmm. a part of this like blonde, thin. I'm also not thin, you know, like I, I just wanted to be like everybody else. And yeah. it really stopped me from exploring pieces of me. And on the other hand, there were certain parts that I frankly couldn't stop from exploring. So I, I became sexually active at a, what a lot of people would consider a young age, but I was in a long-term relationship at that point. So in one way, in my heterosexual self, I was exploring very much. I had experiences in high school that people are like, oh, I did that when I was 26. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. yeah, I was 16. And then on the other hand, when it comes to more of the queer part of myself, mm -hmm. I really shut that shit down. And it was not conscious because I go back and I read my diary from high school. And it's so clear that I had very complex feelings for so many different people. But in the moment, I never thought that. And I never even gave it a second question. It wasn't until I was 19 Mm -hmm. And I developed a very significant crush on my boss. I was working for a bank at the time okay. and part-time and my boss was a woman yeah. and 
it was so overwhelming that there was no like pushing it down to the side. Like I was like, I mean, I felt like I was 12 years old again. It was Mm. so full body experience. And I remember telling my best friend, I really like my boss and I like her. Like I usually like boys. Like that's how I described it to my best friend. And my best friend at the time was like, okay, (laughs) cool. Good for you. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, I came out as a lesbian for a little while, which is Mm -hmm. hilarious for anyone who knows me. Cause like, I really love men a lot. Like I, there's just no way. Um, And my family was like, okay, honey, like whatever whatever works for you, you know, we, we trust you. Um, and then came out again as bi. And then, you know, as I got older, realized that bi felt limiting in itself. Um, and so queer just felt better. That is, I find that so, so interesting simply because, you know, kind of going from a place of it's, it's very interesting to hear of how you've broken that down as well to kind of start exploring the straight parts of you while like kind of really suppressing the more queer parts of you to then finally being like yeah I'm a lesbian now to then obviously now identifying as queer and it's just yeah it's 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 a very interesting journey (laughs) for me for the longest time I used to be like yeah I'm super straight yeah I've kissed a couple of lads but I'm super straight (laughs) (laughs) to to finally be like okay so maybe we are not that straight and that's that's when the moment you start telling yourself like okay this attraction is maybe like you said very full bodied yes and that's the yes. point where you're like okay well, stop lying and honestly if i had had more education on sexual orientation being on a spectrum mm-hmm. i probably would have been able to identify certain things but yeah. in my head it was binary i was either gay or i was straight like yeah. the idea of even bisexuality was kind of this amorphous it didn't the only bisexual person i knew was the character of maureen in rent like (laughs) and like she's basically like her whole character identity is like oh she's a lesbian now like they don't even talk about her actually being bisexual so i had no model for that and so Mm -hmm. i just kind of like flip-flopped back and forth on this binary of like oh, I must be straight. No, now I must be gay. Now I must Mm -hmm. be straight. And had someone been like, hey, it's a spectrum. It's fluid. Like you move. I would have probably said like, oh, that's me. But there, it, yeah, I just didn't know. I didn't know. I I, I do agree. I think it's so important to have, which which is where I was recently talking to somebody about like how pop culture really screwed me over, especially Bollywood. I will continue to say this. Bollywood ruined the shit out of my love language and things. Sure. Because A, it's the unrealistic expectation and then the expectation to convey everything through music and dance. It was a, it was a whole thing. <laughs> what? Uh, you can't do that all the time? Everything? I'm a horrible dancer. I love dancing, <laughs> but I, I'm a horrible dancer. I'll be the first to admit. But I, I, I do agree. I think it, it's so helpful to have those models kind of just visible through every medium. Um, yes. what, was, what was it like as well? I know we've talked about maybe sexuality, but what was it like to start unpacking your you know relationship style or say non-monogamy for you did that come around the same time was that much later it unfortunately was much later and what's really sad and i talk about this in one of the workshops i created around non-monogamy mm-hmm. i actually put pictures of my diary um mm-hmm. from high school in in that yeah. workshop my diary is so clearly me saying i've been with person a for, you know, a year and a half. I really love him. I really want to see what it's like to kiss this other guy. And I don't understand the wording. I think I used was like, I don't know if I'm ready for a long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, because again, it was this binary of I'm either able to kiss this other guy, which means I'm single Mm -hmm. or I get to stay with this person I love. Yeah. And those felt like the only two options. And the analogy that I use now is it's like someone took me to an all you like food from around the world, all you can eat buffet. And they were like, here, Rachel, here is all the food. It's so good. But you can only try one cuisine at a time and you must commit to it for six months. And then you can try another one. Not at the same time, because then you're a slut. And that's bad. 
And like, that's how it felt to me. And so I, around the age of like 15 or so Mm -hmm. became a total serial monogamist. And I hurt so many people because I did not know what I was actually doing. Mm -hmm. Cause what I was doing was trying to have these, (laughs) like I was trying to be non-monogamous, but I didn't have the language. And so of course then no one could consent. And like, it was just not great. And so while I did have many chunks of like happy, successful, monogamous time, none of them really made it until I met my, now the person who I ended up marrying. And on our very first date, he told me that he had had sexual experiences with other men. He told me that, you know, he wasn't sure if he ever wanted to do it again, but he wanted me to know that part of him. So I told him everything about me and I told him that I had just learned in my master's program. It took until my fucking master's program in clinical psychology to learn about non-monogamy. I told him in my master's program, I had learned about this thing called Mm -hmm. (laughs) non-monogamy, this thing. And (laughs) you know, that indigenous people have been doing for thousands of years. Um, You know, I learned about this and I was like, I I just, I don't know how realistic it is for me to be monogamous for the rest of my life. And I was like, and I don't want that to take away from like, I really like you and I, mm-hmm. I want to. And he was like, no, dude, me too. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. And so that was the first relationship where we were monogamous for a very long time. It was actually seven years, which is okay. fucking wild because yeah. now I look back and I'm like, how did I do that? Um, but we were, we were monogamous for seven years and we checked in constantly like yeah. every six months or so we would be like hey do you are you feeling any desire to like talk to other people or and it mm-hmm. would be like no not really not right now my focus is da, 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 da. and eventually in 2019 we saw a show in new york and there was someone that i saw mm-hmm. and i got that same full body experience that okay. i mentioned at the yeah. bank and i was like oh fuck <laughs> and Kyle, my, my husband looked at me and was like, Hey, remember that conversation about non-monogamy? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, do you want to see if, if she'll go out to drinks with you? And like, you can have the space to explore this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, Yeah. I do. And it was at that point that we opened up and, Mm -hmm. and started practicing non-monogamy and haven't looked back since it's just I didn't really realize for a long time that I could identify as non-monogamous and then choose to actively participate in it or not. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, again, it was this binary of on, off, on, off. And so it's been a beautiful exploration and Mm -hmm. it feels so much more me. I have never felt more myself than since that time. I used to have panic disorder and like, I stopped having panic attacks. Okay. Like it really being myself uh-huh. helped me truly live a life that was healthy. Yeah. Two things, as you were saying about the first one, this is the funny one. It's <laughs> funny you say you first discovered the term non-monogamy during your master's. I was in second year of my undergrad and I was just, I, I've forever been fascinated by the Aztecs and the Incas. And I came up, up across this basically mammoth text about Tenochtitlan and everything that used to happen there, they were non-monogamous. And I was like, what is this wild thing that these people are practicing? Also, where can I find some? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but obviously there's still a long journey to go of like discovering and letting those parts of myself be seen. The yeah. other one that you're talking about, and I think this is, this, this is the prelude to the question I'm about to ask. For me, you were the first, you know, you and Kyle, your marriage was the first one that I have seen in a very public way where it's working. Because the the cautionary tale of non-monogamy is the moment you open, it's all it's a dumpster fire. Whereas it's yeah. not. Yeah. And I'm I'm very curious, what has that been like? And also what has just like your sexuality and your relationship style kind of now giving that part of yourself complete permission to exist? What has that been like as well? Oh man. So First, I want to, the dumpster fire thing is so interesting because it's true. And a lot of people, especially clients that I work with, because this is interesting, right? Because I have my own experience. And then also Mm -hmm. I would say like over half of my client load 
are non-monogamous folks. And so I have a really unique experience of not only my own lived experience, but really being like deep in others experiences mm -hmm. of yeah. this process. And most of the time, this like dumpster fire experience that people have mm -hmm. is not because they choose to start practicing non-monogamy. Right. It's because the practice of non-monogamy unearthed yeah. insecurities that were already there that yeah. were not being discussed. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the communication issue that you had around money is mm -hmm. like front and center because who's paying yeah. for dates, right? Yeah. Like it, it's not the non-monogamy itself that yeah. creates the issues most mm -hmm. of the time. It's the opportunities that it gives you to communicate. And quite yeah. frankly, because we're not taught how to communicate well, then people are like, I don't know what to do with all of these new emotions and like all of this logistical stuff. And then we see the dumpster fire. So I just, I want to name that, that like, it's really most of the time, it is not the actual non-monogamy itself that's creating it. It's mm -hmm. the stuff that it unearths. So it, it's been a wild experience. You know, when, when we first started, we were dating separately most of the time and we would start, we started going on dates with couples and really like we would meet these couples and like, one of us would kind of jive with one of them, but like the other wouldn't, or we thought we would jive with them and be on a group text where we all agreed to stay there. And then the gentleman in that heterosexual relationship would like side text me. And I was okay. like, dude, like, what are we doing? And yeah. just, it was like this endless, like, ugh. and yeah. so we stopped dating together for a while and found it much more fun and interesting. And mm -hmm supportive to our relationship to be dating separately. It wasn't until I messaged my now life partner, uh, Yair, that then I found out he was married and mm -hmm. Ashley and I hit it off. And then mm -hmm. I brought Kyle in and then the four of us literally haven't stopped talking since that day. And now we all live together and are That's doing incredible. life together. Um, and I really never thought, oh yeah, we're going to open up our relationship and then I'm going to be a four person family. And like I, I, this, it was never, never a thought. And just simply remaining open to the process and following my gut and following my heart and my instincts yeah. and brought us this beautiful family. And mm -hmm. it's brought me and Kyle so much closer together yeah. in the way of there is nothing but honesty yeah. between us. You know, if, if our sexual relationship is not feeling as strong as another one of my sexual relationships, we can name that. Yeah. And it's not a bad or scary thing. It's like, Hey, there's this mirror up now. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm seeing myself in different situations and I want to bring this into our dynamic, right. Or vice versa. Let's say Kyle and I share something that I don't with Ashley or Yair. I can choose whether or not that's something maybe just for me and Kyle that we happen to share, or yeah. if it's something that I want to bring to my other relationships. And mm -hmm. that's been one of the biggest eye-opening gifts of the whole process is yeah. everybody brings out a different part in us. Mm -hmm. And to be able to then bring that back to your other relationship or relationships yeah. is such a gift. And we do that with our friends, we right? Do. Like yeah. we do that with our friends all the time, but that's, socially normalized. And yeah. so we don't think about it in the same way. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden when sex and romance or sex or romance is involved, it's like, <gasps> Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, but I it's yeah. So it's, it's brought me closer to myself. It's brought me closer to my original partner and it brought me to people that now I get to do life with. And I, it's just fucking wild. It's like, it's still yeah. weird to tell it's like, say this out loud. I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, this is my life. And that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. What I find utterly mind blowing is that all of this happened during a global pandemic. You know, because yes. you you said you started opening up your marriage in 2019 and there's a pandemic that swiftly followed. That yep. completely blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. We had about probably like nine months of COVID free dating. Mm -hmm. And then the whole reason I actually met year well met in quotes we met online but yeah. the reason why we met online was because we were part of a community that brought the in-person events into yeah. a whatsapp group chat 
Okay. And I happened, there was something about the way that he was like posting and interacting. I was like, mm-hmm. same full body experience. I was like, yeah. must, <laughs> must know person. And like, just reached out and yeah. had it not been for that, mm-hmm. that would have never happened. And we yeah. dated, we didn't touch for the no. first, I think it was like six weeks. Okay. We had six feet apart outside dates yeah. where the four of us would go sit in a park and like mm-hmm. sit across from each other. We'd bring our own wine yeah. and just talk for hours and hours and hours. And it, I, I mean, I felt like I was like an Orthodox Jewish person dating. Like yeah. Yeah. we literally couldn't touch like anything and yeah. we got so close. And so by the time we decided to like get tested, quarantine for two weeks, mm-hmm. like have a weekend away together and then yeah. quarantine again so that we could go back home. It was just electric. And yeah. I, I'm really grateful that it happened then, but yeah, it's been, it was hard. It was yeah. hard. I, I, I can imagine. There's so many questions kind of coming up for me, you know, communication. We've talked so much about communication and I mean, I personally believe that communication is key to any relationship, be that monogamous or non-monogamous. Yes. But I'm I'm very curious because communication just sounds so unsexy. Like, oh, we're sitting down and we're talking about all these things that are coming up for us. Early days of opening up your relationship or like even then kind of meeting your two partners now. How how did you hold that space? Uh, yeah. Kind of all these all these different spaces. How, how how did that work? That's a great question. I find communication to be incredibly hot and sexy. Like mm-hmm. it's there is nothing sexier to me than someone who can communicate well, or yeah. even not can, but wants to. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be that like the skills are there because that's what mm-hmm. they are. They're skills, right? Yeah. So as long as someone is like, yeah, I want to learn. I'm like, great, you're hot. Like it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, Kyle and I had a lot of stuff set up in our relationship. We had a weekly family meeting where we would check in. We had these like quarterly getaways where we would go away and really like check in on the relationship ourselves. So we had a lot of like structure set in place in terms of making sure that life didn't like sweep us away and we just like forgot to talk. And then as things kind of opened up, we figured out naturally who was more of the type to initiate discussion Mm-hmm. who maybe needed a little bit more of a nudge. I often will just lead by modeling. So yeah. I will say, you know, back in the day, I would say something like, Hey, I have something that I would love to talk to every, like the three of you about, mm-hmm. or all of us together. Is there a time where we can have space for that conversation? And so I would lead by just using language like that. And mm-hmm. Eventually what happened was they, because that worked so well for all of us, they Mm -hmm. kind of started doing that also. Um, so, you know, Ashley would send a message like, Hey, something came up for me. I'm feeling a little uncomfy. When would be Mm -hmm. a good time for all of us to talk? And now to this day, we have a a biweekly family meeting. We're still on a group chat. So the talking never stops. And anybody who doesn't think communication is sexy or important has not experienced good communication. I agree. Because, right? Like feeling seen and understood Mm -hmm. is such a powerful, it's such a powerful feeling. And we can't be fully seen and we can't be fully understood if we're not communicating. And communicating is both the talking and the listening piece. What happens? This is hypotheticals running in yeah. my head. What what happens? Say, you know, you're you're having the family meeting and a conversation is about, you know, how say something that happened between you and Ashley that made Ashley feel a certain way. When that is communicated to you, how do you contain that space? Because this is about not about you, but like you're the focus of the question or the feeling. How do you contain that space? <sighs> That's a great question. Um, I usually start with reflection. Mm-hmm. And then asking questions. Okay. The second that defenses or fear or anxiety show up, I know, and I'm not obvious, I'm not perfect at this mm-hmm. by any means. I'm a human mm-hmm. being also. So, like, but Rachel, you're a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> human being first, therapist second. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, that is a, a trigger for me to put on my curiosity hat. 
And if I can then come from a place of curiosity and wanting to understand, Mm -hmm. we will then get a lot further. And that's something that I work with clients on as well. It's like when we can actually come from a place of, I want to understand your experience, not from a place of, oh my God, but you're saying that I did something that I didn't. Mm-hmm. Like we can talk about the logistics later. If, if you yeah. think that I yelled and I wasn't yelling and I was just frustrated, like we can nitpick that later. But the point yeah. is, is that someone perceives something and they're hurt. So yeah. like, let's tend to that first. first yeah. And then we can talk about, Hey, you know, you use the term yelling. And from my experience, I didn't perceive it that way. Can you tell me what happened or what I did that created that perception or experience Mm -hmm. for you? And then you learn and you learn how to be a better partner to that person and not just a better partner in general. Yeah, that that is. And and the first time that happens as well, where you heard without like defense or like without the need to be like, oh, but this is not how I intended it to be is magical. Because as you were saying there, I... This is like the one of the early non-monogamous relationships that I was part of. And I was experiencing jealousy. And I have a question about jealousy that I'll chat about as well. And I, instead of being like, you made me jealous, I was terrified. I was dead terrified. It's like, hey, you went on this date and X and Y and Z happened. And I love that that is something you experienced, but it brought something in me. Can we just talk about this? And instead of being like, oh, you're jealous, this shit was like, yeah, tell me how you're feeling. I was like, wait, sorry, what? I'm sorry, we're not going to we're not going to try and erase my feelings and say, oh, no, but I didn't mean to make you feel jealous. We're just going to talk about how that is for me. Yeah, Um, that is just which is why I I have to agree. Communication is so much about listening and receiving as much as it is about being open to saying things as well. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And just asking the questions, right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, share that with me. How are you feeling? Yeah. Like open questions can go such a long way in that that situation. Yes. So in in advance of our recording today, I reached out to people on my social circles being like, hey, any questions about non-monogamy, fire them my way. And a couple came through. So just going to throw them your way. And I'm curious what what comes out of that. Great. Um, So so, so one one of my friends was just like, so they're thinking, I don't know if they're thinking about it, but one of their questions was, you know, there's certain misconceptions about non-monogamy that... What do you think are some of those misconceptions that people should think about or maybe debunk internally before they try it themselves? It's a really, really, really great question. There are a lot of misconceptions about non-monogamy. So, okay, I'll go through a few. One of them is Mm -hmm. that something is wrong or Mm -hmm. lacking or missing in the quote unquote original relationship Mm -hmm. or that something is lacking in in an individual person if they're solo poly, right? And yeah. that's just not true. It mm-hmm. It is true that sometimes that's the case. Absolutely, yeah. right? There are mm-hmm. times where people turn to non-monogamy as like this last ditch effort in like yeah. saving their relationship. And yeah. that typically doesn't go super well. So the truth is, is that when non-monogamy is done for, I hate this term, the right reasons, I feel like I'm on The Bachelor, but when it's done for, for reasons that are in alignment with you and, yeah. and or your partner, it's not about lack. It's about yeah. and. It's about mm-hmm. adding, yeah. right? It's about creating more and more ands in your life, yeah. not creating more ors or trying to fill holes that are empty. Mm-hmm. Another misconception, which again is true for some, but not for all, yeah. is that it's all about sex. Yeah. You know, for some people it is. And, Mm -hmm. and for a lot of people, that's actually how it starts. You know, I hear so many couples, they're like, well, we don't want like feelings involved in this, but like, Mm -hmm. we just want to like sexually explore. And for some people that works for many people, like we're humans, we have emotions. We can't put rules or make agreements on like, I promise I will never feel this feeling of it. Like, no, we, we're. We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And kind of under that same umbrella is this idea that it's like giving each other permission to cheat. Mm-hmm. I oh, hear yeah. that all the time. Like, yeah. oh, isn't that just like saying, yeah, you can go cheat on me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, because cheating can happen in non-monogamy too. Yeah. Cheating is the behaving against an agreement that you've made. 
So in monogamous relationships, you've agreed to be monogamous. Mm -hmm. And if someone cheats, most likely that means that they went and did something with someone else outside of that relationship that is not within an agreement that you've made. And same thing in non-monogamy. If you have an agreement that, you know, you're not going to have butt sex with someone else and you go out and you do that and then you come home, that's cheating, right? Like you've, you've broken an agreement. So non-monogamy is not about giving each other permission to cheat. Um, Another big one is that if you're in an existing relationship, so for example, like Kyle and I were, that that primary quote relationship becomes Mm -hmm. less important or deprioritized. And my example to kind of contradict, contract, I don't know, go against this misconception is, you know, if you have a best friend or a close friend, and then Mm -hmm. you start a new job and you meet a new friend and they become another close friend, does Mm -hmm. that new friend take away from your old friend? No, No. it becomes an and like now you have two close friends and that's how non-monogamy is. It's about and an additive. It's not about, or, okay. I have two more for you. Are you ready? Go. Yeah. Okay. The, the fourth one is, is that your sexuality or sexual orientation determines whether or not you're non-monogamous. So I have heard so many times where like, oh, of course you're non-monogamous, you're queer. So Mm -hmm. like you want to have different gender partners and like, that makes sense. But like, I'm heterosexual. So like, I don't need more than one penis or like, Mm -hmm. There's just no correlation between your sexual yeah. orientation and your preferred relationship structure or relationship orientation. It just, yeah. they don't have to do with each other. And then finally, the last one is, is that both people in an existing relationship have to want to practice non-monogamy in order for one person to. Um, there are plenty of relationships where one person is like, I'm monogamous. Like mm-hmm. I don't really want to, I don't feel comfortable. I am, I have no desire to have these types of relationships outside of my primary relationship. And then the other person is like, okay, well, I'm pretty sure I identify as non-monogamous and Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to be myself in my life. And, you know, monogamous partner says, great, let's come up with some agreements on how this can work. And I have seen that work so often and people just assume that this is like a recipe for disaster. And it's just not that, you know, the, when we feel secure in our relationships, it doesn't matter what our partner is doing when we're not with them. Yeah. If they're going, you know, if you take the time to make agreements and they are acting within those agreements Mm -hmm. and you trust them to do so, there's nothing else to talk about. You know, and you, of course we can talk about the feelings that come up, but like, it is not a recipe for disaster. And that's probably one of the biggest questions that I get asked is like, my partner doesn't want to be non-monogamous, but I am non-monogamous. Like, what do I do? And the answer is not stuff down who you are for the rest of your life and pretend you're someone else like that. That's going to lead to a lot of issue. And so while it may bring up issues Mm -hmm. at first, when you bring this up, it's not going to create more issues than if you pretend to be someone you're not for the rest of your relationship. I I I promise. The the latter is a recipe for disaster. Whereas the first is an opportunity for sexy as fuck communication. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I also, I also think there's the fundamental divide between viewing love as like something that is scarce and viewing love as something that is abundant. And I mean, I firmly fall on the camp of abundance. And because it is, I mean, you, you said it, it's the, why do we view friendships in a different lens, but suddenly there's romance and sex involved or can be. And suddenly we're like, oh no, this is something more like sacred. I'm curious, were there any myths that you had to unlearn or debunk for yourself as you were opening your marriage up? Um, it's a great question. I, I think by the time Kyle and I were at the point of pulling the trigger on this, yeah. No, like we had done a lot of that unpacking. Um, I was really ready between understanding what it was academically from, Mm -hmm. you know, my, my master's program, which again is like so ridiculous that that's where I learned 
what this is. <laughs> um, between yeah. that and then also having clients over the years that were mm-hmm. non-monogamous. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really feel I felt very confident in in our decision yeah. and happy for Kyle and myself yeah. and now all four of us. Yeah. Yeah, here's another one. This is this is one that I absolutely love to hear answers about. Is jealousy normal in non-monogamous relationships and how do you handle jealousy that may come up? So here's my question back. Isn't jealousy normal in all relationships? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like I I've I've been jealous of friends. Yeah. I have certainly been jealous in monogamous relationships. Yeah. And I have certainly been jealous in non-monogamous <laughs> relationships. Like that's like to me that's the same question is like is sadness yeah. normal in your, like, yes, it is an yeah. emotion that we yeah. experience. And jealousy is so interesting because we, we often view it as like an indicator that something is wrong mm-hmm. or like, Oh, I'm feeling jealous. We got to shut this shit down. And no, please don't. <laughs> um, yeah. Jealousy is really a collection of emotions mm-hmm. made up of. So think about it as like a big cloud. And there's like lots of different emotions that create jealousy. It's not a primary emotion, like happiness, sadness, anger. Mm -hmm. And with jealousy, yes, it is deeply uncomfortable. Like Mm -hmm. I don't want to sugarcoat it for anybody. There have been times where I literally have thrown up because I have felt so uncomfortable in the emotional experience of jealousy. I've stayed awake all night. I, you know, you name it, like I've been there and I, I get that that is deeply uncomfortable because anything new for us Mm -hmm. as human beings is deeply uncomfortable. Our brains have not evolved past the point of Mm -hmm. new equals uncomfortable equals get me out of here. (laughs) Like we hit that discomfort and we're like fight or flight. I got to go. I hate you. I'm out. Like we just start acting in like, not like ourselves. So jealousy, yes, is completely normal. And I actually have a workshop called Navigating Jealousy and Non-Monogamy because it is such a big topic for people. And it's really not that complicated in the way that it's an opportunity to ask, what is making up this feeling? Yeah. Do I feel insecure about something Mm -hmm. about myself? Mm -hmm. Am I feeling insecure about something in the relationship that is currently feeling jealousy? Am I missing something? Am I watching someone else get something that I want? Am I scared that this person is going to leave me? Yeah. All of these things can manifest into what we describe as jealousy. And I think it is a beautiful invitation to learn about ourselves, mm-hmm. learn about our relationship yeah. and figure out what types of reassurances you need both on a day-to-day basis and potentially like when your partner goes out on a date, yeah. is there something that's helpful to hear or to experience before they go, you know, to just ease the feeling of like danger, they're going away, yeah. um, which is normal, right? Because we're all, so many of us, most of us are mm-hmm. brought up and socialized in a mononormative society. So we have things programmed in our brains about monogamy that we don't even realize. Mm -hmm. And so when we feel threatened, when that feels threatened, we will often experience something that we then articulate as jealousy. So yes, it's normal. It's normal as a human being, not just a (laughs) non-monogamy. And depending on the source of the jealousy Mm -hmm. will then depend on what the coping mechanism is. And there's also no shame, you know, like I said, I've stayed up all night. I've gotten physically sick. Like Mm -hmm. when we're feeling new things, sometimes we have to just feel the new things Mm -hmm. and let it be. And it sucks in the moment. You know, I wasn't happy. I was throwing up. I wasn't happy. I was awake all night, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't awake all night for for two weeks. Right. It's, it's one night that I can now look back on and say, wow, I was so scared. Yeah. Like, I I really wasn't jealous. I was terrified and it was coming out as jealousy because it was under the context of a partner being out with someone else, but really it had nothing to do with someone else. It had to do with fear around losing what I have. 
And so having that, those opportunities to really look inward and ask ourselves, like, what is this about is such a gift for ourselves and for the relationships that we're in. I think the, in, in many ways, giving yourself permission to both feel that jealousy and also then, as you said, you know, finding ways to navigate it, talk about it, understand why it's coming for you really makes way. It wasn't something I ever experienced till I started doing that, which is obviously a term in non-monogamous circles that's often heard, but maybe not so much outside of it. Compersion. Yeah. Really yeah. make room for compersion, which would you, would you like to talk about what compersion is for anybody kind of listening in? Yeah. Compersion is the opposite of schadenfreude. So it's yeah. vicarious joy yeah. in watching a partner of yours experience joy with someone yeah. else. It's that simple. It's like positive empathy. Yeah. It's such a good feeling. It's oh. the, the, the moment you experience is the best thing. It's like, here's a person that I really value. And here's another person that really values over them. Fuck, we can nerd out over this person together. It's great. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. Like, it's incredible. Okay, last question on the questions that I'm fielding because I want to move to the your social media side of things. Okay. What would you words of wisdom or advice to anyone kind of testing the waters with non-monogamy or maybe just too scared to start and wondering if that is for them? Mm. Okay, a couple things. Read some books. Mm-hmm. Come to one of my support groups. I have a donation-based non-monogamous support group and there are a lot of people in that position that come. They're like we have read a lot of things. We've learned a lot. We think we want to dive in the pool, but like, Ooh, we're not sure. And so finding community and hearing other people's stuff is so helpful in Mm -hmm. understanding if you want to take that step. The other thing that I would say is like, give yourself and your partner Mm -hmm. compassion and patience and acknowledge that because you're going to take a step or if you take a step into something new, Mm-hmm. that you're going to stumble yeah. with anything new. We're going to stumble. Yeah. So kind of going in with like, I'm not going to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. Yeah. We're probably going to hurt each other on accident at some yeah. point. So let's acknowledge right now yeah. that we don't ever want to intentionally hurt each other, yeah. that we promise to tell each other for feeling hurt, that we yeah. promise to tell each other for feeling jealous yeah. and figuring out how to navigate those first steps is really just ripping the bandaid off. You know, I remember going on my very first date once we opened up and I texted Kyle probably 85 times before I got to this date, I was in an Uber and I was like, are we okay? Do you still love me? Are we okay? Are we, no, you still love me now? Are you sure this is okay? Are like, I was a mess. And he's like, you're the one that's going out. Like I'm at home playing video games we're good. Like have fun. Text me when you're coming home. And I was like, okay, but like, are you sure this is okay? (laughs) Like (laughs) I was insatiable. And sometimes we need to ask for those reassurances over and over and over and over again until our brain experiences something and says, oh, it is safe for me to put my phone down for an hour and a half and talk to someone that I just met. Like that is okay. So just leaning into your own emotional experience, having patience for it and giving your partner what they need as well, as long mm-hmm. as it's within reason and within things that you have agreed upon. Yeah, that, that, that's a, that's definitely been my experience. And I think with any new thing, it's very uncomfortable, but like, it's almost better to embrace that it will be uncomfortable. Same as, you know, when we talked about jealousy. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And just even that acknowledgement that like anything new is uncomfy and uncomfy doesn't mean bad. It means uncomfortable. Like that's what it is. And we as humans will do so much to avoid discomfort. Like we'll do anything to try to discharge away discomfort. And so the skill of learning to sit with that and asking yourself questions or journaling or talking to a friend, like it's hard and it's so worth it. It will bleed into other areas of your life. It will bleed into work. It'll bleed into your friendships because relationships are relationships are relationships. Mm-hmm. Like it will bleed into so many wonderful, wonderful places in your life. Absolutely. I, I equate it to dipping your toes in cold water. Eventually you get, get okay with it. You know, you get acclimatized. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you said something there about, you know, community and how helpful it is. And also the, the support group that you run. 
And I think I said this to you on our call, but like, I find it so incredible how you navigate your presence on social media because, and I I say this with absolutely the intention to shower praise upon you because you're, you're not an influencer at all. Like you're supportive of your community without being preachy, which you can, you know, you, you, you've all the credentials to turn preachy if you decided to like, I'm a therapist, listen to me. Um, (laughs) But also you're you're very supportive you you field all these q and a's you take requests to be on podcasts from folks like me you you you're doing these support groups you're running workshops you're seeing clients you're working all these different ways just like how the fuck do you do all of it <laughs> like what's the secret because uh, I, I can imagine it can be quite a lot you know first of all thank you i i'm trying to get better at receiving in general so thank you i receive that yeah. um it my social media presence has been something that similar to my sexuality and non-monogamy mm-hmm. has been something that I've actually had to learn to accept about myself. And mm-hmm. let me give context to this. Cause that probably sounds really weird out mm-hmm. of context when before Instagram, yeah. when Facebook was like the place to be, you know, yeah. when I was in college and you had to have the at, you know, dot edu email yeah. to be on Facebook. Yeah. Like that's where we were. <laughs> Um, when Facebook transitioned out of that and became, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, my aunt and my mom and my cousin, like everyone can be on Facebook. I found myself in a position where I was receiving feedback from mostly family members, some friends, but mostly like outside family members, not immediate of why do you share so much on Facebook? Yeah. And at that time in my life, we're talking like, I have a cold. Mm-hmm. These are the things I like to do when I have a cold. What do you like to do for yourself when you have a cold? And they were like, why are you sharing so much on Facebook? And I'm like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And they're like, nobody needs to know that you have a cold, Rachel. And I'm like, yeah, but if someone else has a cold and they read my post and they start discussing what remedies, like maybe they'll feel less alone and maybe we'll all learn new remedies for colds. Like, Mm -hmm. The idea of showing up as myself was so innate that it didn't become a choice until I realized that so many people were against it and, and didn't understand it. And it became a little harder, you know, when I became a therapist, Mm -hmm. most therapists are very private about their own lives. And I completely respect that everybody has their different way of doing therapy. And that includes when they're not in session, right? That, that can be, I want to be a blank slate for my clients. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to know if I'm married, if I'm gay, if I live in a hut, if I live in a home, like they just don't want them to know anything. And that's cool. Like that, that works for some people. And there are clients out there that look for therapists like that. I'm not like that. I want my clients to know that I am a human first Mm -hmm. and a therapist second. And being a therapist is my job. It is the career that I have chosen and it's part of who I am, but it's not all of who I am. And being a therapist doesn't mean that I also don't have anxiety and depression. Being a therapist doesn't mean that I communicate perfectly 100% of the time, all like in every situation. And when I started, sharing more and more about these imperfections, about my life, about my own mental health stuff. The amount of feedback that I got from people was essentially like, now I feel comfortable going to therapy Mm -hmm. because I know that I'm not talking to a robot. Like I know that you understand because you have shared your experience. And that is such an incredible feeling. So in terms of like the internal process, that's really how it's been. And now it's a very conscious choice. You know, I, I know that there are, I have colleagues that are like, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand why you share so much. Why does anyone deserve to know so much about your life? And to me, I just, I've never seen it like that. You know, we're, we're all human beings. We're all trying to navigate so many different things in this world that are so hard. Why not talk about our own experiences to help other people? Because that's how we learn. Like 
that's why we love movies and TV shows is storytelling about people. And yeah. in movies and TV shows, it's usually very unrealistic. Yeah. And so if we don't have that counterbalance of like storytelling and understanding people's lives in real life, mm-hmm. then we never learn that feeling jealousy is normal yeah. and staying up a whole night because you're jealous is like an experience that you can have. And that mm-hmm. isn't shameful. So, yeah. And then it, you know, in terms of like time and energy and, and that stuff, I find it very cup filling for me and like, yeah. uh, to do these things, mm-hmm. but I do constantly ask myself, you know, how much energy do I have today yeah. and what, what can I give and what can't I give? Yeah. And there will be chunks of time where I won't do an AMA because I have a ton of clients that week, or, you know, I'm working on creating a workshop or I'm leading tons of groups. And so splitting my focus doesn't work. And then there are other times where it's like, I'll do three in one week because that's just how I'm feeling. So I try to be consistent in terms of being present and like Mm -hmm. saying hi, even if that's like, Hey, I'm having a bad week, (laughs) probably not going to be on here much this week. Yeah. Or being present and and answering everybody's questions, you know, three times in a week. But I love it. I love the community that um, I've been able to curate through it. Yeah. And, you know, those people then meeting other people who yeah. are like-minded, being open-minded. And yeah, it's really interesting, you know? And then I start to post about political stuff and like my follower count will drop like <laughs> a thousand people in a day. And I'm like, <laughs> bye, like, <laughs> great, cool. You learned I'm liberal. Bye. Like, what did you expect? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So that's always fun to watch. And, you know, it really, it's, it's a humbling experience and it's, uh, it just kind of helps me take things a little less personally. Yeah. I love it. I I love, love, love my Instagram fam as I, as I call them. Yeah. Before I move to the last two questions, I think the, the vulnerability that you approach it with and the way the way you've done it is i mean i am one of like so many people and i know i'm not alone when i say this i think it it helps people like me feel less alone in our identity and i i I know eventually i would have gotten to that place i hope i would have but um i just want to say thank you yeah thank you that's why i do it yeah you you really do make a difference and i know i'm not alone in saying that Um, thank you uh, here's my last two questions for you I have a time machine and immediately as I press enter, you're back in time to 10 year old Rachel who, or nine year old Rachel, actually, who's been, you know, told she has lesbian (laughs) shoes. Um, (laughs) You have an hour with yourself, nine or 10 year old. So what do you, what do you talk about? What do you, what do you tell 10 year old Rachel? Oh my gosh. Okay. Three things pop into my head. Don't be afraid of receiving whatever that is, receiving pleasure, receiving compliments, receiving gifts, receiving, uh, just receiving. Don't be afraid of receiving. The second would be, you don't need to take care of everyone all the time. And I think the third would be wear what you want, be with who you want, be Mm -hmm. who you want. And you are a kind human who wants other people to be happy and you will not treat people poorly by being yourself. Like you being you, little Rachel, if other people have a problem with that, that's their problem. That's not because you've done something wrong. Those, that's what I would tell her. That's very good. Okay, I, can't, I don't have a time machine to send you in the future, but I will send you this episode 10 years in the future. Uh, <laughs> what, what, is your, what is your hope? for yourself 10 years in the future? Ah, well, I hope I'm still with these three wonderful humans that I'm with now. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope that we have a couple kiddos Mm -hmm. at that point. And really other than the kid shift, I don't want a lot to be different. I hope that I keep growing and I hope that I have new wisdom and can speak to new things and that I've learned a lot in -hmm. that decade. But in terms of like how my life looks, I don't want a lot to be different. I I think that the one thing that I'll say is that 
you know, I recently had ketamine treatment for depression and I hope 10 years from now that my brain feels as stable and good as it does right now Mm -hmm. without the need for more treatments. And if it still needs treatments, then like sign me the fuck up and I'm there. And like, that's, that's fine. Um, but if we're, if we're magic wanding into the future, then yeah. 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 Well, I, well, I hope all of that and more comes to pass, Rachel. Uh, but to you. present Rachel, who's in front of me on Zoom, thank you. I thank you. This all came out of a cold email that I sent your way. And I'm so, so very grateful that I have the opportunity to talk with somebody who's been so influential for my own life. You're amazing. I, I've, I've said it so many times within my own circles, and I'm going to say it on my podcast as well, because damn it, this is my podcast and Rachel <laughs> Wright is amazing. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Where can where can people find you if they want to see what you're up to? Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm literally blushing. Um, find me. My website is rachelwrightnyc.com. That's mm-hmm. R-A-C-H-E-L-W-R-I-G-H-T-N-Y-C.com. And my Instagram is the right underscore Rachel, spelled the same, right? With the W, Rachel spelled E-L. Those are my two main places. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. Not as much. Tweet about like The Bachelor sometimes. You know, it's not really. I'm not really as active on there. Yeah. So those those would be the two main places. Okay. I'll, I'll leave all of this down kind of in the show notes. But thank you, Rachel, again for coming in for the episode today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. We have another episode out next week on the Wednesday. And if you like what we do and the work that we're putting out do consider joining our Patreon. Till then, this has been Love and Citizenship, and I will catch you in the next one.